Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Probably most of what we call the spirit of motivation is there in a compassionate guide, a compassionate parent, a compassionate teacher. In other words, they don't drag people into change, drag people into learning. What they do is come alongside them and help them get the best out of themselves. You're listening to Dr. Stephen Rolnick on Psychologist Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, director of the Center for Stress and Anxiety Management. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hi, everyone. If you're a mental health professional, check out some of the online offerings from Praxis. You can link to them through our website, offtheclockpsych.com. Praxis offers some really wonderful trainings in acceptance and commitment therapy and other therapies related to the content of the episode today that will help you build some of these core clinical skills. Um, And if you link to it through our website, you can get a discount. So check it out. Today, we have the privilege of talking with Dr. Stephen Rolnick, who is one of the founders of Motivational Interviewing. And Motivational Interviewing, if you are a therapist or a healthcare provider, most likely you have his book on your shelf. It's one of the foundational approaches to supporting people and making change, whether it's in addictions or healthcare settings or uh or even teaching and parenting. It's just it's a real treasure to have him on the show and hear directly from him. Yeah, it was so cool. You even did a little mini motivational interviewing practice with him, which yeah. was what a privilege for you. Yes, I was so excited. I was ready for him to fix my life, change my life. <laughs> and just to note, this, is, this recording was done with Dr. Rolnick prior to the pandemic. And then Debbie and I right now are pretty much in real time. It's Monday. We're going to be releasing this on Wednesday. So some of the concepts that we talk about may feel, even just re-listening to it again, Debbie, felt a little bit out of place talking about things like coaching athletes, which is not happening right now, or or some of my personal struggle around work-life balance, which has changed so much since that time. So we just want to acknowledge there may be some things that feel a little bit different than what you're experiencing right now, but the concepts that he offers are particularly helpful, I think, right now, because communication in our households with each other, with our loved ones, uh, is probably under a lot of stress right now. And it's helpful to have some tools and ideas of how to address them. Yeah, I think I have to do a few things a little, uh, try something new with my spouse when we're in quarantine. (laughs) Because the other day he observed 
it seems like every time I walk into the room, you have something for me to do. And I, I think of them as helpful suggestions, but apparently it's not going over too well. And he usually just rolls his eyes and ignores me, which is pretty much what we find with the more directive approach is that it doesn't work. People don't like it. They don't listen. They, they kind of have a, a bit of a backlash against it. And so I love Dr. Rolnick's approach, which is just a, a kinder, gentler version of how to instill change. Well, it's kinder, gentler, and it's also how to increase intrinsic motivation for change in the person that you're working with. So there's just the human nature of ambivalence when we're uh, wanting to change something in our life. Often we have reasons why we want to change and reasons why we don't. And as soon as someone outside of our sphere starts to argue for change for us, it's a natural tendency to put up some resistance and, and you argue against change. So that would, even if your husband maybe was thinking about picking up his socks or doing something like that, as soon as you tell him to, now he really doesn't want to do it anymore. And that can happen with our partners. It certainly happens all the time with our kids, with our teenagers, or teachers working with our students. And the, the real skill in motivational interviewing is that one, it takes a lot of patience on the part of the person that's doing this type of communication. I think patience I've been thinking a lot about right now is not one of my strengths and it's something that I really value and I think we all need more of right now. So patience and patience comes in with asking more open-ended questions at the beginning of a conversation. Open-ended questions, not going in with your suggestion for change right away and really listening and affirming in the person that you're talking with what you're hearing and listening for change talk, which he discusses a little bit in the episode. Change talk is just that little bit of, of a suggestion on the person you're talking with that maybe they want to make a change in a, in a behavior of theirs, but maybe they don't feel like they have the skills or they're concerned about it, but really reinforcing that change talk in somebody, highlighting it. Yeah, it reminded me a bit of the interview that our co-host Yael did a couple months back about the family guide to addictions and how often families will really be on the case of the person who has a substance abuse problem or an addiction and kind of focus on trying to get them to change versus positively and reinforcing the time that the person themselves takes a step in the right direction. And I think that's a really important thing and a really hard thing to do sometimes because it can feel so microscopic, but you really want to just have the patience to wait for those moments and kind of reinforce the change talk or the change itself. And so, yeah, it's a hard thing to do, but I think it's really highly effective and the research certainly bears that out. I think also helping people identify discrepancies between how, how they are and how they want to be. And that really maps on to some of the ACT work. And he talks about values in this episode as well, that values are connected to that intrinsic motivation for change and helping people identify the discrepancy between what they value and maybe how they're acting and just reflecting and summarizing what you're hearing about that. That can be really powerful as well. Yeah. And another area where this approach is used a lot is in medical settings. And I work in a healthcare setting. And often I think the old model was that you'd go in and your provider who's an authority figure sort of tells you what to do, you know, quit smoking, lose weight, change your diet, etc. And it's sort of been well established by now that that isn't a highly effective approach. People say, oh yeah, that sounds good. And then they go home and they, they don't do it. And so the, a lot of healthcare settings have trained all kinds of providers in motivational interviewing as a way to elicit change talk and build that intrinsic motivation. So it feels less like a power dynamic and being told what to do and something that helps the patient have buy-in and their own internal motivation. 
So whether you're a therapist working with clients right now, whether you're in a medical setting working with patients, whether you're a mom and dad just trying to get through the day with their kids not destroying your house, <laughs> we hope that some of these communication strategies will be helpful for you. There's a lot that we can't control right now. And I think it's just sometimes helpful to have some focus in on what can I control? What can I do to make communication healthier, more effective, more positive within my home or whatever settings I'm in? Thank you. Take care and be safe. Stephen Rolnick is a co-founder of Motivational Interviewing. His work has included support to programs for pregnant teens, children with HIV AIDS in Africa, medication adherence in different areas. He's also a co-founder of PADA, Pediatric AIDS Treatment for Africa, and the Motivational Interviewing Network for Trainers. He is the co-author with William Miller of Motivational Interviewing, Helping People Change, and the author of books including Health Behavior Change, A Guide for Practitioners, Motivational Interviewing in Healthcare, Motivational Interviewing in Schools, and his newest book, Coaching Athletes to Be Their Best in Sports. He is an honorary distinguished professor in the School of Medicine at Cardiff University, Wales in the UK, with a research record focused on good practice and efforts to promote change and behavior change among patients, clients, and the practitioners who serve them. It's a real honor to have you on the show. Thank you for being on, Dr. Volnick. Really, honestly, it's a pleasure. I'm sitting in the, the wintry, wild, stormy weather of South Wales in the United Kingdom. I'm sitting at home and I'm by the fire and ready to chat to you. Sounds lovely. And I think maybe a good place to start is for us to talk about what motivational interviewing is before we talk more about how you use it in these different domains. And it's really a client-centered uh, but also directive style of, of counseling that elicits change in people, particularly people that um, are experiencing um, ambivalence that's a natural part of change. You've applied it in a lot of different ways. Can you begin with sharing with us how you came about motivational interviewing? I mean, you, you described its, its essence very well there. You captured it, which is that it's a, it's a style, a way of speaking to people about change particularly if they are uncertain about a particular change, hence your use of the word ambivalence. And it's also a set of skills that you use within that style for getting the best out of them and your conversation with them. So that's it, like fairly broadly, I guess. But if I guess one way of looking at it is, it, is it's like a recipe with familiar ingredients, but done in a particular way. Okay, so the, the, it, it, it's, a, it's a reasonably coherent and well-defined recipe, but the ingredients are all familiar. So I, mu I must say, Diana, I never saw it that way when we started this journey, right, which goes back to the early 1980s. I kind of thought we were in this world of specialist treatment. In, mm -hmm. in, in that scenario, it was addiction treatment. But as the decades have unfolded, I've got to see it more as a matter of what we did was we uncovered jewels, if you like, that were already there. It's a bit like we're miners. These jewels were already there and inside all of us. And we also uncovered, I guess, whatever the opposite of jewels are, if you like, dysfunctions or nasty little stones, right? So we, un we uncovered things that go on in communication that are either helpful or not. And all of these jewels involve talking with people about change. That, that, that's what it's connected to. Well, it's interesting you use the word recipe because 
I think there's two different types of cooks. There's the cooks that get out the cookbook and follow these specific steps. And then the cooks that are just really good cooks that have a sense of where to go next and how to put things together. And what I've noticed about motivational interviewing over time is that it's become less cookbook. When I learned it in graduate school, it was all about acronyms. You got to remember the ors and the this and the that. And now it feels much more of an, like you said, the, the essence, the spirit is really at the forefront. Can you speak about what is the spirit of motivational interviewing? What are some of those jewels? And we can also talk about some of the stones. Absolutely. And you're absolutely right about, you know, the recipe idea has got its limitations because as we know, you can follow a recipe and that is not what I was wanting to indicate, right? I just meant that the ingredients are familiar, but you make your own recipe with this, okay? You you meant, you ask about what is the spirit? And I guess that's... Um, you could call it a style. You could call it a way of being with people when you talk about change. It is probably most recognizable in the attitude of a compassionate guide. Probably most of what we call the spirit of motivational interviewing is there in a compassionate guide, a compassionate parent, a compassionate teacher. In other words, they don't, drag people into change, drag people into learning. What they do is come alongside them and help them get the best out of themselves. And this involves an attitude, a certain attitude to how you speak to someone and how you bring the best out of them. And that's where the techniques come in. How do you speak with somebody so that you get the best out of them? But there's, there's different ways of framing this, and I don't want to fill our conversation with all sorts of jargon, which is why I'm deliberately talking about familiar um, um, styles that are used in everyday life by people like a travel guide. A travel guide won't tell you what to do if you walk into a travel shop. They'll say, where do you want to go? And they'll help you refine your your sense of what's going to be best for you. So that that is what we mean by the spirit, but I could dive a little bit more deeply into it if you want to, but that's the essence of it. Yeah. You said it's sort of something that's inherent within us, but at the same time, I think when you're in the helping profession or you're a parent or you're a teacher or you're a coach, our tendency is to not do that step back and allow space for the person you're working with to come to their own conclusion. Our tendency is to know what's best for them and tell them. So what, what happens when we do that, when, when, we, when we tell people what they should be doing? How does that create problems for people? I mean, sometimes it works. If you have a very good connection with somebody and they deeply respect you and you tell them what to do, they, sometimes it does work. And also it, it can work to just tell people what to do if all you want them to do is to comply mm. and adhere to what you like in the military or something like that. People will do that, and I'm not suggesting there's only one way of encouraging people to change. That is certainly one way. But really, Diana, if I go right back to the beginning, what Miller and I discovered 6,000 miles apart, I was in Cape Town, South Africa as a young nurse, and he was, um, he was in Albuquerque, New Mexico as a young psychologist, we both discovered something quite simultaneous at the same time in the same setting, which was addiction treatment, which was the more we tried to persuade people to change, tell them why it was a good idea, tell them how to go about it, 
the harder they seem to kick back. And Diana, uh, what we noticed was that we were surrounded by a treatment environment in which, given that problem, the staff around us and ourselves included tended to blame the other person. So that when we tried to explain to them why or how they should change and they resisted, until Miller had this kind of seminal insight, the tendency was to say it's their fault. There's something wrong with them. And indeed, the textbooks had this idea that alcoholics and drug addicts are pathological liars. You've got to watch out for them. And Miller's seminal insight was this, that if I see that as a problem in the relationship, not just in the person I'm speaking to, it then raises the question, well, what can I do to repair this such that this person feels safe enough and brave enough to be really open with me? And with his background in Rogerian counseling and a number of other psychotherapies, what he found was that if he shifted his style to one that was more empathic, I would say, looking back, a good empathic guide, if he shifted his style, their resistance sort of disappeared. And their motivation to change seemed to flourish and fire up in front of him. And I had an identical experience in, in South Africa, Cape Town, South Africa, where I was a young nurse, where this fiery atmosphere of confronting patients and them denying and resisting it exploded in my face one day. And, and, and a terrible thing happened to a patient who walked out and very violent things happened. And it shook me. And I then read Miller's paper and started using what he called motivational interviewing and found that he was right. He was right. Some of the most difficult conversations could be made really easy. If you shifted your style, you empathized more, you practiced these skills, that these jewels that we uncovered from mostly Rogerian counseling. Very, very tough scenarios could be made a lot easier and outcomes would be better. And that seems, looking back, that seems to be what the many, many hundreds of controlled trials sort of show us. There's like, I don't know, I don't, I don't keep track, Diana, but there's probably 1,400 plus randomized controlled trials of motivation into me. God knows where this all comes from. Every imaginable field, mm-hmm. you know. Um, even terror suspect interviewing I hear last week of, of research in that area. What you find is that if you come alongside and practice empathic listening in the face of a difficult conversation about change, things improve. So in, in a weird sort of way, the harder the problem it is you face, the softer is the style that's needed to help someone be brave enough to consider change. Mm-hmm. And it takes bravery, I think, on the part of the clinician or the hostage, hostage negotiator or the parent to step into the natural ambivalence that is present when people are um, struggling with change. It, it's hard to not just argue the reasons why the person should change, but actually step into the ambivalence. Can you talk about what role ambivalence plays in this process and how you work with it? You know, I think it's completely normal, first of all. It's not some special pathological feature of patients or clients. We all know that experience of feeling, uh-oh, I better do this, 
or somebody else is making me feel I better do this. And we all know that experience of thinking about a change, feeling reluctant, and then stopping thinking about it and not doing anything about it. So ambivalence in this sense is like completely normal. It's part of the human condition. And it seems like this is really quite strange, Diana. It seems like if somebody is feeling that way and you take the position on the change side of their conflict, you adopt that position and you try and, for example, persuade me out of my feelings of ambivalence, it seems like a natural reaction on my part to protect myself and to tell you why change isn't a good idea. And that's a perverse, you know, people like freedom to make their own minds up for themselves. And yet, you know, just this morning I'm saying to my son, because I'm stressed, you know, you asked about like when things go wrong and why do things go wrong? I think if people are stressed, if they feel very important and expert, if they think they know it all and someone's ambivalent, you're going to hit trouble. So I said to my, my eight-year-old this morning, listen, don't put the muddy shoes on, okay? Just don't do it. And I could see he was wavering, right? Use these other shoes. I know they're not the right color, but just use them. Boy, did I get into trouble, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's very normal. It's very common. It's very human. And we very commonly make the mistake when we feel stressed, rushed, mm -hmm. if we feel we know it all. And basically, I suppose, if we stop paying attention to the learning and growth of the person in front of us. Right. I think there's this, this part of it where we start focusing on the outcome that we want to get to, as opposed right. to the, the process of, I mean, even for your son to have that decision making for himself of why, why would it be good to wear muddy shoes or not wear muddy shoes? There's a, there's a whole problem solving skill that gets lost when we go straight to, okay, don't do this or do this. And that actually helping the people we work with develop that problem solving skill on their own or assume that they can actually problem solve for themselves for the most part, that we can be there to support the problem solving is, is actually strengthening, that we weaken people by going straight to solving the ambivalence for them. Exactly. Yeah. You cracked it, Diana. And, you know, um, there's an influence that positive psychology has had on motivational interviewing, which I'm only just beginning to recognize and appreciate, which is that so many of us, I mean, in your and my case, we're expert psychologists, okay? But ditto the school teacher, ditto the expert parent, ditto the sports coach. We tend to slip into a rather unfortunate pattern, which is the more expert we feel, the more we tend to see ourselves as problem solvers. And it comes from a really good place. But unfortunately, if you see yourself as a problem solver, then all you see are problems. I mean, I, I don't know whether this strikes you as pop psychology psychobabble, but, you know, one of the influences of positive psychology on, on, on my work and on our work and motivational interviewing is that it is possible to put on a different set of lenses, if you like, on top of those lenses that just look for problems, which is to look at, look, this is a human being in the first instance, athlete, patient, client, kid, second. But it's a human being first, and that human being likes freedom, likes to feel connected, and likes to learn for themselves. And if that had been the lens that I'd looked at my son this morning, 
I would have done what you suggested, which is not especially clever. It's not particularly specialist and expert. It's just something we forget about. And it's a natural approach to helping someone learn, which is to say to the guy, look, there's dirty black shoes and there's clean gray shoes, right? What do you reckon, guy? You know? And then if our connection is good enough and he feels safe enough, he will go, "Uh uh-uh, maybe I should take the clean gray shoes. Instead, I slipped into the pattern of saying, don't do this, do that, do this, do that. And it evokes reactants. So I got into trouble. Okay, so, you know, I've got to learn to be humble. Like, you know, uh, when you're stressed out, you don't help people learn. Yeah. I guess that was my, my little lesson this morning. Well, and another lesson that you've taught me in some of your writings is that we can always get back on track, which is the nice thing. And yeah. so many times throughout a session, I catch myself going into problem solving and seeing the change talk decreasing and the resistance showing up. For me, that's just a signal to me of, okay, I need to change course here. This isn't, this isn't working what I'm doing. And in addition to starting with empathy and the relationship that you work with in motivational interviewing, there are things like building discrepancy, helping the client identify their values and, and where is the discrepancy there between how they're acting and their values. And then also this concept of um, change talk. Can you, can you speak to some of those strategies that you use? Yeah, you know, I was, with, I was with an athlete this morning. The guy's had an injury, career-threatening injury, shortly before he reaches the apex of this particular elite sport he's been involved in. And he's talking to me about, maybe I could go into recruitment. Maybe I could uh, all-action talk. You know, maybe I could go into property. And with my motivational interviewing hat on, What I said to him, I asked his permission and I said, look, could I just shift the focus here and ask you, what is really important to you? You Why do you want to go into these things? What what are the talents that you have? What do you think brings the best out of you? He looked at me kind of frozen for a moment because he wasn't expecting this. He said, so what are you getting at? And I said, look, I'm just wondering why you want to do these things. And he started talking about his values. And when he did that, what I heard was the natural expression of his dreams and aspirations, which took the form of change talk. Mm -hmm. In other words, these are his own good reasons to improve and change. And so in motivational interviewing, all we do is we flag up that very natural language that people use when they talk positively about change. We give it that label, change talk, and we say, when you hear that, don't change the subject. Get out of the person's way mm-hmm. while they tell you why and how they want to change. And that change talk is an expression of their motivation to change. And so the techniques of motivational interviewing are designed to help you respond to that and get the best out of the person. So that when you do get to talk about practicalities, as we did this morning, he said, look, I think it's property for me. I was able to say to him, well, what would be a reasonable plan for you right now, given that you can see your career is about to end here? And he said, I think ba, 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 ba. Now, I heard change talk again. Mm -hmm. And so we developed a change plan that was driven entirely by motivational interviewing. 
he came up with the plan. It was yeah. his plan, not mine. I gave him some advice along the way. And we helped firm up an ABC change plan for him that had him feeling, okay, at least I know where to start here. And I'm going to learn as I go along. So change talk is the natural expression of someone's motivation to change. And calling for it like I did, why would you want to do these things? Recognizing it when it appears and then responding appropriately with empathic listening, which we can get into in a moment. Those are the core skills of motivational interviewing. Mm -hmm. what, what I found was that I felt very close to this guy. I felt compassion for him. I think he felt understood by me. And there was no battle. There was no sense of friction in the conversation. It was not me saying to him, I tell you what, why don't you meet so-and-so? I know somebody who's high up in property. Why don't you meet him? Advice giving, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think advice giving can be beautiful and skillful. But that would be really clumsy. Yeah. And so we could, talk, we could talk about giving people advice and feedback and how you can make that into an art form, which I believe it is. But it's got buried in this avalanche of action talk by parents and teachers and sports coaches thinking they know what's best for other people. And that's, I guess, where the fork in the road comes. Right. <laughs> you can take one of two directions there. Well, and it's what you write it, that people are better motivated by reasons they come up with themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And so it seems like that was that, that was the skill set that you were using there of having him come up with his reasons that are connected to his values and what he knows about himself will, will motivate him as opposed to you coming in with the suggestions of, you know, the people that you know high up in real estate. So you, you mentioned that there's some, some, some specific skills around practicing empathy. Yeah, big what, one. What, what does that look like? Big one. On the technical front, so to speak, empathic listening and affirming are two really incredibly powerful skills. And I use the word skill, I use the word skill deliberately. So it, it, when you say you can be empathic with someone, it doesn't just mean standing in their shoes and trying to understand their experience. And so that's a little jewel that we picked up from Rogerian counseling, which actually exists in everyday life. I've seen people use empathic listening without knowing anything about Rogers. I've seen a seven-year-old kid use empathic listening. Okay. So these are, that's what I meant by jewels that you uncover. And here's what it is. I mean, different ways of defining it. I'm not saying it's, this is the best way, but here's how we see it. Okay. It like it happens in two stages. The first is what is commonly regarded as empathy, which is to try and imagine someone's experience. Okay. Try and stand in their shoes. We all have this facility because it's founded on curiosity. That's step one is to imagine someone's experience. But then there's a second step that we've uncovered from Rogers' work, which is to say to someone, to make a statement to them that shows them that you understand their experience. So empathic listening involves both of those steps. Mm -hmm. Now, what we found in motivational interviewing is that this skill, which is, it's commonly regarded, I must, I don't want to I'm not sure whether this is the case in the United States, but a lot of my psychologist colleagues consider this, oh, this is basic. Yeah. This is 
listen. I do that all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do it all the time. I, I don't need to practice this. Honestly, Diana, I've, I had to drag myself kicking and screaming into the world of empathy because I was a problem solver, right? I have spent decades practicing the skill and trying to get better at it. And it's like playing a musical instrument, a conversational instrument. It's very powerful and useful. Could I just identify a couple of uses of this? Sure. We'd love to hear it. Yeah. First of all, for connecting with people, it's incredibly useful. Okay. Particularly when there's heat, an argument, upset, disengagement, practicing this skill radically improves the level of engagement. Okay. And I'm, sit, I'm driving a car the other day, and the seven-year-old, he was seven, and sits in the back, and he sit, and the windscreen wipers are going really fast because it's pouring with rain. He sits in the back of the car, and he says, those windscreen wipers must make driving really difficult for you, Dad. Right? Now, that's a statement, not a question. And his statement indicated to me that he not only imagined what it was like, but he told me, mm-hmm. he said what he thought it must be like for me. So the power and how did you of, feel when he said that? I thought, my God, who is that in the back seat? <laughs> Nailed it. It's exactly right. I, I feel so supported and heard by my backseat driver. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little seven-year-old kid. Yeah. His mom's clear and he's curious, and he naturally comes out with an empathic listening statement. Now, so empathic listening is very powerful for improving connection, okay, and for 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 dealing with difficult conversations. We used to call it resistance. We don't anymore. But if you want to use that word, resistance will go down if you use empathic listening in any situation. So that might be useful for for some of your listeners. But then there's another use to it, another couple of uses to to empathic listening. One of them is particularly specific to motivational interviews which is that when someone is talking positively about change and you hear that change talk, the most useful response is is empathic listening. They not only feel understood, but they feel brave enough to explore further how they might develop a different perspective or a different plan. Mm -hmm. So this empathic listening sits at the heart of motivational interviewing because it, 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 it helps you get out of the way of people as they're coming to a new perspective, as they're deciding about why and how they want to change. Yeah. One of my very first and early supervisors was a Rogerian therapist, and he described it as dribbling the ball down a soccer field or a football field. And when you're dribbling, when you practice empathic listening, you're sort of just giving that ball like a little bit of a nudge and it keeps on moving in that direction as opposed to coming in from the side or blocking it. Yeah. And it's very easy to block people's discovery of the best way of, of doing things. Yeah. And then I, then I think there's a third use for it, which is poorly understood, and it's something I'm just busy working on at the moment, which is when you want to give advice to someone yes. or information. And when I, uh, a bit earlier, described advice giving as an art form, I feel that if you use empathic listening when you give advice, it sends you into a, onto a different level with someone. And you can give advice really effectively if you integrate it with empathic listening. 
Can you give an an example of that, of what that would look like with working with an athlete or? um, Yes, sure. Sure. We developed the framework called Ask, Offer, Ask. Now, the traditional approach to advice giving is not to ask, like me with a kid this morning, right? But just to tell, advise, inform, and then you get kickback. Using this simple framework, ask, offer, ask, what you do is you first ask and listen, okay, which helps to engage people. It helps you then get to understand what their information needs are. Then you provide, but then critically, having provided your information or advice, you use empathic listening to draw out of them what sense they might make of it. Okay? So I could give you a practical example from the sports field if you want to, or any field. I mean, what Let's would do make... Sports. Let's do sports. Do we do sports? A guy who runs a, an elite academy in sport says to me, look, we've got this problem with parents screaming from the sidelines. Okay. Very common, actually. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Over-eager parents, right? Giving advice to their children that's against the coach's advice. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And when it's against the coach's advice, the coaches go nuts. It's a problem. Sometimes I think there's a a competition between coaches and parents, and the coaches like to do the screaming, right? (laughs) And And they don't like it when the parents do, but that's another story. But here the guy said to me, look, we've got to do something about this because the, 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 the parents are, 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 are sometimes are right out of hand and they cut across what we're doing. Okay, fair enough. It's a problem. So I said, look, well, why don't we get together with, with, with parents, okay? And we want to give them advice to maybe not shout out so much, right? But if we tell them to do that, they're going to feel resentful. You can see it coming. So we've got a few parents together. and. He said, well, do you want to facilitate the discussion? I said, yeah, it's great because you're part of the problem, so to speak. You're the coach. So I sat down with him and I said, look, we have something here that we want to discuss with you and possibly give you some advice about, but we first want to know how you feel about it. So now this is the illicit. So I said, how do you guys feel about standing on the side of the field and wanting to give the kids advice? How do you feel about that? The parents went, wow, 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 wow. It was our kid. We drove all the way. I drove 75 miles to blah, 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 blah. I want him to do better and blah, blah, blah. He's my kid. So we elicited from them what sense they made of this whole thing. Then I asked permission to give them some advice. But look, from the, from the club's point of view, our advice is let's try and find a different way of going about this because it's not helping the kids when we see them confused between the coaches and the parents. So our advice here is that we must solve this problem. That is our advice. This is really important. And the coaching team have decided they want to solve this problem in some way. And we suggest that you parents come up with some kind of way of, of handling this differently. That's the end of the provision, okay, of the advice. So this is advice mm-hmm. given in the group. What do you guys make of it? And what we heard from the parents was change talk. Mm-hmm. They weren't agreeing altogether, but they were, oh, I see the point. So it's different kinds of – so then we ended up with a solution, which one of the parents suggested, and we said, yeah, okay, let's go with that, which was the parents have a huddle bef- 
before the practice session starts. And one of the coaches has a huddle with the parents, explains to them what they want to do in this particular practice session so that the parents feel part of it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we had a good outcome there, but that's with a group. But with an individual, it's much easier. First, ask them what they understand about this whole situation. Ask their permission to give them some advice or feedback. Give them the advice or feedback. And then critically, listen for all you're worth about what sense they make of it. And mm-hmm. that's when you hear them expressing change talk and motivational interviewing and advice giving become merged. And I think what you're, what you're pointing to is these the importance of even when you're giving advice, you're giving freedom to choose this component of autonomy. Even when you're giving advice, you're connecting and having this sense of relatedness. And then you're also checking for competence. So those three components of sort of self-determination of what motivates people, you're using that even when giving advice. And it's a different way of giving advice than telling the kid to not wear the muddy shoes. It's great. One of the actual techniques that I do apply from graduate school (laughs) of all of the specific recipes, but one recipe that I do use on a regular basis is the ruler. And the reason why I like that is that it it assesses not only for uh, where people are in terms of their motivation for change, but it also can be a tool to increase motivation for change. Can you talk about the ruler sort of technique, how you use it? Yeah. I mean, it's it's a device. You know, I don't know where it came from. Okay. It might have, the idea wasn't ours. I think the idea of scaling things on a, on a scale from 0 to 10 is nothing new. I think right. solution-focused therapy, who knows where it came from. But what we find in motivational interviewing is a thing of beauty when you use this device because you can ask someone a question, how important is it for you to make this change on a scale from 0 to 10? 0 is not at all important. 10 is very important. Give me a number. And they go, mm-hmm, usually somewhere around the middle because people often feel ambivalent. The thing of beauty is what happens next and how you integrate listening into it. Because if you say to somebody, well, why did you give yourself a score of five and not zero? You hear change talk. You hear them saying why this is at least important to some degree. And then you can say, what would have to happen for that score to go up from five to six or seven? And you hear change talk again. So it's a very neat way of having a conversation with someone where you use a scale, a kind of a visual uh, a device for helping them explore why or how they can change. And so you can use a ruler for lots of different questions about how motivated you are, how important it is, how confident you feel. I, I even had a Swedish, uh, a Swedish colleague who says he uses a ruler when he's with somebody to, to work out how helpful and engaged they are. So he goes naught to 10. Naught is not at all helpful, this conversation. 10 yeah. is very helpful. What yeah. number would you like? Yeah. So it's I use a, it with my kids. And, I, and it's just a quick, easy assessment of where they are. But then asking that first question of why is it a five and not a one helps sort of them do the change talk. But the other question that I really like is, what would you need for it to get to be a nine or or 10, how to, how to increase it. And then they start talking about specifics around how they could increase their own change. Yeah. Absolutely. I love it. 
It's yeah. absolutely so. It's a neat example of how stuff that comes from psychology can be used in everyday life, and that's what's happened to us, and particularly to me. And uh, you know, as a co-founder of Motivational Interviewing, I've sort of gone on this this thirty forty year journey, in which I've I felt wow. What about school teachers mm-hmm. when they want to help a kid to solve a maths problem? Where does empathic listening come in there? Where does a scaling procedure come in there? And now with sports coaches, exactly the same set of techniques can be used to get the best out of, of athletes and coaches. Another area where you've done a lot of work is with pediatric AIDS. That seems like it's very meaningful work. Can you talk about your experience there and what, what you're doing in that arena? Oh, Diana, it was, you know, it was devastating. Uh, uh, you know, by, by the turn of the century, um, millions of people were losing their lives in Africa. Okay? And the most vulnerable and the most neglected were kids by some distance. And, you know, even today, this is very serious. Even today, you know, there are 2016, uh, a million kids with AIDS in Africa that are untreated. There's about a million that are in treatment, but about a million that are untreated. So these dreadful um, figures and stories became, um, I became familiar with them through going back home to South Africa quite a lot and developed with a couple of colleagues um, a network for treatment teams because the people at the front end of this, they are the ones who are dealing daily with devastatingly difficult situations, poverty, stigma, um, and, and also the really important need for people to take antiretrovirals which in about 2005, they were, on, they were on track. And now it was just a question of, of engaging people and persuading them to take these medicines. And so I spent a solid 10-year period um, in that field. And I could say I had my heart broken and lifted in equal measure. You know, it was broken by the, by the sheer scale of the problem and the tragedies that these people uh, were, were working with. And it was lifted immensely by the spirit of these uh, doctors, nurses, and counselors working in difficult circumstances. And in a gentle way, we help them to be more reflective about how they speak to people, because you can imagine it's easy for them to pull out what we call the writing reflex, you know, the inappropriate advice giving and try and hammer away at people and they don't like it. And so um, next month I'm going out to meet these provincial ministers of health in South Africa and we're taking them through a motivational interviewing workshop in person. They are going to experience it and then we're going to discuss policy implications the next day. The thing here is not, I don't mean to wave a motivational interviewing flag at all. It's, it's not about that. It's about looking after the well-being of practitioners who are out there working in difficult circumstances and giving them every support to do a better job. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a summary of like 10, 15 years of um, a tremendously rewarding and heartbreaking uh, experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. 
And as you mentioned, in, in the field of healthcare, sometimes maybe you only have one or two sessions or one, or one hour with someone or 15 minutes with someone. Is motivational interviewing effective even in that short period of time? Yes. I, I think the evidence does point to it. Certainly there's research studies, but, you know, literally in the space of two, three minutes, it is possible to engage with somebody, raise whatever subject you'd like to, and help them to consider and face change. And you have to be super, you have to be more skillful if you've got less time. But funnily enough, here's a paradox. The more you use these listening skills, the quicker is your progress. Mm. Okay, and that's something that's quite difficult for people to take on board because they think, uh, listening means I've got to sit back and just let the person talk and I don't have time for it. But if you use the kind of listening that, that we described in motivational interviewing that comes from Rogers, that my son in the back of the car uses, your progress will be quicker. Kelly Wilson often says, we don't have a lot of time, so we need to slow down. And there's something relieving about taking that, that pressure off also for the therapist or counselor, that they don't have to have it all figured out and then apply it, that they open up the space for, for the person that's sitting with them and yeah. slow it down a bit. In that yeah. sense, you don't have time not to listen. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I think motivational interviewing is, is best learned through, through uh, demonstration or experience. And uh, I'm wondering if we could maybe just demonstrate some of the skills you've talked about today uh, with me around something and do a quick little motivational interviewing example. Either you could give an example of what not to do <laughs> first and then an example of what to do, and then we could talk about just the, the specific skills that, we, that you're using. What do you think? Oh, it's a half crazy idea, but I don't mind doing it. Is it half crazy? No, with pleasure. Let's go. Let's see how we get on. Okay. okay. We'll make it quick. We'll go fast and speed through it. Yeah. We'll, we'll do it in two minutes. We'll change your life in two minutes. No. Good. I will appreciate that. No, so why don't you think of a scenario in which something that, um, let's think, something that you feel two ways about, a sort of change, nothing too personal. No. Because we don't, we don't want to engage in, in personal psychotherapy. Yeah? Nothing too personal, but nothing too superficial. Okay, nothing too mm. superficial like my hair color or something like that, you know, something you feel you really, yeah, you thought you'd like to change, but you're not so sure or other people at any rate think maybe you should make this change. And then I think what you're asking me to do is first show you how not to do it. Yeah. And then try and demonstrate good practice. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And I, we could, we could tweak it a little bit, and make it something that you definitely, you know, I know you think people people want you to make this change, but you definitely don't want to. Okay? Ah, okay. That'll, that'll ramp up the pressure on me to do a good job. Okay. Okay? Okay. That, that's, that's quite a common one. That, I got quite, one. That, that place, that gives me quite a high bar. Yeah. But um, you provoke me into trying to do a good job. Well, I, I've got one that I have a, a good amount of uh, resistance around. Uh, okay. uh, which people are saying I need to do my friends, my family, my, my uh, partner, which is reduce the number of clients that I'm seeing Yeah. to make space for some other things that I'm doing in my life professionally and also make more space for my friends, <laughs> my family and my partner. 
So these people are, are, are really pointing out to you a problem. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, can you see, if you look down the line, can you see, do you know anything about burnout? <laughs> uh, yes, I experience it currently. Yes, <laughs> I know a lot really? about burnout. <laughs> Really, yeah. so you're really experiencing burnout, and and yeah. you know it's re- it's really important that when you see the warning signals, you do something about that. Can't you see that? Yeah, mm-hmm. I I probably should do something about it. I see the warning signals. Yeah, you can see the warning signals. Okay, and I think the important thing is to start making a plan. You know, start at least cutting back just a little bit, because if you can see the warning signals. Um, that's really a good first step. I've tried that a million times. I, I make a plan, I cut back, and it doesn't work because then somebody needs to get to see me. They're having a crisis. I fit them in, and then um, that just yeah. doesn't, it hasn't worked for me. Okay, so what that tells us is that you've got a really good heart. You're actually being a little bit soft. So the question <laughs> then becomes, how can you toughen up here? You know, because it sounds like you need to toughen up. And I'm just wondering, would you mind, I, I, you know, yeah, but t- I, I don't want to toughen up. I kind of like having a soft heart. Okay, I love we, what I do. That's the problem is I love what I do. And so, okay. um, yeah. Can we, can we stop there? Yeah, it's good. So if we step out of that, what, what I know I can tell because I've got visual contact with you while we're doing this, which the listeners maybe don't realize, I can tell from your, from your face that the harder I try and persuade you, the more you tend to back off. Um, this is something that you're ambivalent about. And if I adopt the change side and try and persuade you, I heard three or four buts in that conversation. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the, the most important thing is how did you feel? Uh, I, felt res- I felt resistant. I felt like you weren't getting me. I felt like you were trying to, that you had some idea of what I should, what I should do. I felt like you were psychoeducating me about burnout. I'm like, I'm, of course I know about burnout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and yeah, I could feel the butts. And so that, yeah, I felt, and I felt just tense in my body. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I was trying to be a little bit extreme. So I was yeah. being very insensitive there, but uh, you know, without trying to parody advice giving, that is often what happens. I stopped listening to you because I felt I had the solution to your problem. Mm-hmm. Basically. I, mean, I, I fell into most of the traps that we've identified in motivational interview. Mm-hmm. I was using something called the writing reflex, see a problem, boom. Now, look, we stopped there, but we could have carried on and it could have, t- and we would have both been left with the feeling that time was wasted. Yeah. So the question is, how can we make better use of the time? So should I try and have a go now at a sort of variation of motivational interviewing? Yes. My family okay. will thank you for it. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to call your partner in here? Whatever. Sorry, I was making a joke. <laughs> Diana, Diana, what what's the essence of this of this conflict for you? Try and help me understand. It. The essence of the conflict is that I love too many things. <laughs> I love my work. I enjoy my work. I find it incredibly rewarding to me, and I also love my family and my friends, and want to spend time with them. And I feel like there's not enough time to do it all. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's like, it's like not so easy for you to fit into your life the things that you value. Right. 
Yeah, it's not. I always say I wish I had just one more day a week to fit it all in. So the ideal for you would be to sort of carry on doing your clinical work, the parts of your life going without having to make any kind of radical reduction in the amounts of clients that you see. Well, yeah, that I guess that would be the ideal and I and I see all the consequences of not reducing my clients because I end up um, feeling spread too thin in in all the domains. Yeah. And so it doesn't really feel like the solution to just try and keep fitting everything in. No. Yeah, I don't. Must be, there's maybe some other way of, of going about this. Yeah, except for every time I try and make a change, I, I fall back into the same pattern again. That, that, that's the struggle for me, is that I, I want it to be different, and I feel that that's that it, there's a possibility of it being different or, or, or I don't know. I don't know if there's a possibility of it being different because I keep on falling back into the same pattern. Yeah. And so it's not like you don't see the need for change. It's that you haven't found a way of, of making it happen. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And we can, we can stop there, but that's exactly it. Yeah. What okay. would you do next? Next. Yeah. It's, it seems like the difficulty for you is not the why, but the how. Uh-huh. Okay. What I did was I, I used one reflection, empathic listening statement after another. I don't, yeah. think I, asked, I don't think I asked you any questions. I just used empathic <laughs> listening statement. It was amazing, though. It felt like a, like a massage for my, <laughs> for my struggle because I just felt really understood. And I felt like you were taking me somewhere. somewhere. Was that <laughs> you weren't asking questions? You were just reflecting, huh? It's I interesting. was just using yeah. empathic listening statements. Yeah. But I felt we were trying to get to a shared understanding of, of what this challenge was for you. Because yeah. I didn't didn't know, but the empathic listening helped me to develop that shared understanding, which sounds like it was going to become not about why, but about how. Yeah. Um, yeah. How you could make a change so that you don't lose the wonderful clinical work that, that, that you value and at the same time have space for other things in your life. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. Yeah. And so... Like yeah, and so the so the foundation is using the empathic listening maybe to get to the why, but then it, it's also doing that next level of assessment of do they do they feel like they can carry this out? And you can see that with something like alcohol use. Maybe they come in really clear, this is not working for me in my life, but not really clear on how to make the change. And yeah. the temptation there, and it's a mistake, is either to jump in with advice giving. Or to assume that because you know the why, you, you, the why is clear for you, we just got to talk practically about the how. Mm -hmm. In truth, the why and the how tend to be kind of intermingled and your motivation's going to go up and down. As In the moment, as we speak, it's going to go up and down. And so the next step would be to look at the how, but use precisely the same techniques. It wouldn't, I wouldn't make any adjustment there. If we had to spend two, three minutes talking about the how, it would be a very difficult conversation for you. Because obviously, if the solution was that simple, you would have done it a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Okay? So we're talking about delving into something deeply personal here to you when we talk about the how. 
and you need space to wonder aloud with me how that might come about. There might be a place for me to give you information and advice. In that conversation, I would have waited, I would have held back from any advice giving because in the space of just a couple of minutes, we were getting pretty close to what the challenge is. Mm-hmm. Now I must give you the space to just gently consider the how. Mm. So and, what would be a probing question for that? Like what, what would that question look like? Well, I, w- I, wouldn't even, I wouldn't even need a question. I mean, you mm. could use a question, um, but I would probably say something to you like, so this feels really important to you to do something about the balance in your life without losing things. And I'm just wondering that it's more to do with how you're going to do this. So I'm just wondering mm-hmm. aloud in a curious way with you, and you can say, well, bah, 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 bah. so we'll gently ease into the how, but you could easily have a direct open question, which is, mm-hmm. I wonder how you might do something about this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But notice it's wonder, the word wonder. It's not emphatic. It's, it's We are sharing curious um, ideas about this, yeah. not firming everything up. And I would be very mistaken in a conversation like this to imagine that we've got to finish it with you making an agreement to change. Right. Okay. Right. In that sense, it's not like the school shoes with a kid. Mm-hmm. Okay. In, in this scenario, it's to leave you with the courage based on my compassionate and caring attitude to face this for yourself. Right. Exactly. With the conviction that the solution sits inside you. Yeah. And it, it, it is really a feeling of like you're saddling up right next to me yeah. in this supportive way. So I feel kind of held in it, but that, yes, but the responsibility is, is still, still in me. And it's so skillful. What you've done is you've taken this process of what felt very natural between the two of us, and then you've broken it down into what are, like you said, what are the ingredients of what is... Stephen Rolnick doing in that moment. And that's what you do with, with your description, motivational interviewing, whether it's in your book or it's in your work with athletes when you write about that, or it's work, the work with healthcare providers when you write about that. That's what's, uh, I think, really exciting is that we can learn how to do that. Uh, it's not just sort of like this oh, gift. Yes. Oh, yes. And what I didn't, the technique that I never used was affirmation, was affirming you. And yeah. really, I, and I just never got around to it, and I wasn't trying to be clever, so I, to be honest, never thought about it. But if I were to critique what I did then, it was a certain failure to put the strength lenses on in front of the problem-solving lenses. Yes. I might have said to you something like this. You've put a lot of effort into expressing your core values in your clinical work and nerd out into your family life as well. And yet it's somehow it's somehow not balancing out. Okay? Yeah. Now, what I said to begin with was an affirmation. I was shining a light on your good qualities and the effort that you've made. That would be an example of affirmation. Mm-hmm. And the logic here is that that skill in itself can have a tremendously powerful effect on people. Mm-hmm. But it's wearing the lenses that's important. 
Right. The affirmation will come tripping off your tongue if you wear the lenses. You can't think clever, clever, I'm going to make an affirmation right. now. Right. I've got to really look at you as, as somebody with good qualities and achievements and success in order to say it. So I've got to see yeah, you as a yeah. human being with strengths, not a client with problems. Right. Okay? Exactly. And, and I love how in the, in the coaching athletes book, you even, you, you reference this because there's a difference between affirmation and praise, which is what we, right. we tend to fall into the praise, which is good job. Great work. Yeah. Uh, as, as opposed to actually affirming the person. Yeah. yeah. Now that, that, that might be one of the biggest contributions of this book for sports coaches. That's the sort of feedback I'm getting. Yeah. Because, you know, when I was down in a cricket club, I know it's a, it's a sport that's foreign to you guys, but it's a lot like baseball, right? Except it, one game takes five days, so let's not <laughs> talk about it, right? But I was down in a cricket club yesterday, and one of the coaches said, what's this thing between, between affirmation and praise, the difference between them? And I said, look, we know at home, you don't have to sit in a sports field, at home, at school, here on the sports field, it's all this good job stuff, mm -hmm. right? And it doesn't actually, um, it, it, it's like ha having a little drink, right? It makes you feel gently intoxicated for a short while, right? And then the effect wears off. Right. And the athlete or the child is then looking for more confirmation from you that they've done a good job. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's a judgment that comes from the outside that's passed about, your how well you've done and it carries this shadow shadow uh, uh behavior from the coach or parent that if you haven't done well you that could get pointed out or if you don't get praised you're not doing a good job right and school teachers this is really important you know to just use praise all the time like it's confetti i think they've done research that demonstrates i think this is carol dweck's work mm -hmm. demonstrate that Praise that's excessively used in particular ways actually depresses performance. Mm -hmm. And what we found with affirmation is that it's not a judgment you passed. It's simply shining a light on something that's already inside you. So when I said to you, you've put a lot of effort into expressing your values in your clinical work and in really trying to be compassionate in your clinical work and indeed in the family that's around you, that's not praise. I'm mm -hmm. not saying well done for doing that. I'm just saying that's the reality mm -hmm. that is in you. And it has a very different effect on people. Yeah. It creates the intrinsic motivation as opposed to the extrinsic motivator, which if the, then if no one's looking to praise you, then you're not really going <laughs> to, Engage in the behavior, right? As opposed to it coming from, from within. Yeah. Really, I have come across uh, elite athletes who said that they became depressed when the praise dried up. Right. Okay. And burnt out. Right. Okay. I've also come across clients who unintentionally from me, I can't say I did this intentionally, have been enormously transformed by affirmation. So I'll give you one quick story, Okay. This is quite recent. There's this guy with type 2 diabetes, addicted to multiple drugs, okay, living in poverty, two or three ex-wives or girlfriends, two or three kids from each, and he's about to have a leg amputated. Hmm. Early 40s, out of control type 1 diabetes. What a clinician 
or any other human being would regard as a walking nightmare of problems. Mm -hmm. I mean, his life expectancy was greatly reduced. And I'd seen him quite a few times, and it was very difficult not to get overwhelmed by the gravity of his problems and just hearing him talk about them. One day he walked out, and this, oh, by the way, the surgeons didn't want to take his leg off because he was chain smoking. Yeah. Okay? Right? Dreadful situation. One day he comes back to me and he says, Steve, I stopped smoking. And I said, you are joking. That is, that is, that must have taken some effort. Rather than well done, mm -hmm. okay, that must have taken some effort is an affirmation, yeah. okay? And he said, no, it took no effort at all. It was something that you said that changed everything for me, Stephen. I said, you're joking. What did I say? He said, as I got up last time to say goodbye to you, you stood up, you shook my hand, and you said you were a dignified person, mm -hmm. which I must have said. I don't know why. I must have noticed it, right, this dignity in the face of these troubles. He said, I walked out, and I said to myself, I am a dignified person. And no one's going to take my dignity away. And I'm going to use my dignity and I'm stopping smoking. And he stopped smoking. Okay. Now, I don't tell you that story to say, oh, how wonderful is Steve's use of affirmation. I wasn't even conscious of it. Okay. I, I must have had the strength lenses on and seen something beautiful inside him. I simply pointed it out. Mm -hmm. So I think affirmation is something, I don't know where it comes from, Diana. I must be honest, I've tried to see where that technique comes from. I don't understand where in psychology it comes from. I reckon it's one of those jewels that's inside all of us. I reckon good parents and teachers and coaches do use it sometimes, but we've been conditioned to over to use praise instead. Yeah. Just cool it on the praise, right, and practice affirmation, and you'll notice people – responding in a much more heartful uh, way. Well, I think ultimately what we, what we crave is to be, to be seen and for someone to reflect what they, what they see and to see the goodness in us. And I, I think that that's actually one of your gifts is um, bringing that, that heart to the field of psychology and in, in this really, um, impactful way in a, in a global sense, but also in just a one-on-one -on -one personal sense that, that you do it one-on-one -on -one with me, but then you're out there like changing the world in terms of pediatric AIDS. It's pretty phenomenal. Uh, thank you for spending this time with us and sharing what you've shared with us on this show. And also thank you for your life's work and changing the lives that you have. Oh, honestly, Diana, thank you. Honestly, really, it was a pleasure. And um, I do hope your listeners take a few nuggets out of it and um, enjoy using them in everyday life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please help us out by writing a review on iTunes. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. We're at offtheclockpsych.com.